So uh, today we're going to open to a sort of random place in the Bible, uh, because it's right in the middle of the book of Acts, Acts 12, if you want to turn there now. I say random because we're parachuting right into the middle of a long book and a long story. Acts is the story of the early church. Uh, Jesus has been crucified, he has been raised, and in the opening chapters of Acts, he ascends to heaven, where he reigns as king even now. Uh, But his kingdom, as expressed on earth, doesn't look like very much at this point. I mean, it's a few hundred people in a small region in the Middle East who are under persecution from the Roman Empire, and they have this message, they have this word that they want to tell people, but it's unclear if it's going to get out, right? Because they're small and they're under persecution. Um, But their goal, their commission, is to take that word, that gospel, that good news, to the known world. Acts 1.8, at the very beginning of the book, Jesus, before his ascension, makes this promise to his followers. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Acts 1.8 is the thesis statement for the whole book. That is what Acts is about. And not only is it the point that my Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but it actually sets up, it's really interesting, it sets up the very structure of the book of Acts. So that one sentence um, structures the whole book. So in the early chapters, we see the kingdom of God taking root in Jerusalem, and then the gospel spreads to the outlying regions in Israel and Samaria, Judea, and that's all chapters 8 through 11. And then in chapters 13, in the second half of the book, we see Paul taking his missionary journeys to the Gentiles, and that's when it goes to the ends of the earth. Okay? So this is the structure of the whole book. Um, and Acts 12, what we're going to look at today, where we're kind of parachuting right into the middle of the book, is this transitional chapter. And it's in between the sort of localized expansion of the gospel and the global expansion of the gospel. And we get right in the middle this kind of summary story. Okay? It's like when you're reading, I don't know if you remember back to college or high school, you're reading some like textbook and it's kind of like dense and academic and you think you're tracking and you think you know know what's going on, but you're sort of getting lost in the weeds of it all. I was a philosophy major in college. This happened to me like every afternoon, okay? I'm like reading a book. I'm like, who are we? What are we talking about? But you know, there's always that one paragraph at the end of the chapter that basically tells you everything you need to know, right? It just like goes back and summarizes the whole thing. So you just like skip forward 15 pages, read that one paragraph, and you know what's going on, and then you can move on with the rest. Okay, that's Acts 12. That's what's going on in this story. It's a summary story that tells us where we've been and where we're heading. And what is Acts 12 about? Uh, In a word, it's about a showdown. Now, I was reading an article recently uh, bemoaning the lack of good showdowns these days. Okay, so we all remember, you know, Rocky Apollo. We all remember Luke and Darth, right? And even like Neo and Mr. Anderson. Like these are like classics. Everybody, like these are, we'll tell our kids about these showdowns. But who did the X-Men fight again? Or the Avengers? Like who even knows? Who did Iron Man fight in the third movie? Like there's a lot, we don't have these kind of classic showdowns anymore um, that we used to have. And so here, Acts 12 is your end of the summer blockbuster showdown, all right? It's a classic. It's one for the ages. It's got all the components that we need. It's a tragedy. It's a comedy. 
It's got just the right amount of gore. It's got a great plot, plot twist, poetic justice in the end. And I should add that this particular blockbuster is entirely true. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's awesome. Uh, you guys can follow along, and then we'll unpack it for a few minutes um, and call it a day. So Acts 12, starting in verse one. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, and said, Get up, quickly. And all of his chains uh, fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them at, of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and where many were gathered uh, together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. All right, back to the story of Herod, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, this is an epic story, a showdown 
between kingdoms and kings, between um, whole ways of living and approaching the world. We pray that as we look at these dueling kings, uh, you would just speak to our hearts. Show us the truth of your reign. Show us the truth of your power and your goodness in the world. Help us see your kingdom alive and active and real in our lives and in the world. We ask these things in your name. Okay, so the beginning and the end of our chapter is about King Herod. Now, in these two sections that frame the whole thing, Luke goes out of his way to highlight, Luke is the author of Acts, uh, he goes out of his way to highlight Herod's position, his authority, his kind of kingly official acts. You'll notice he talks about his robe and his throne. He calls him the king two or three different times. Um, but inside that picture frame, Luke builds another picture, a picture of King Jesus at work in the lives of his people. All right? We have two pictures, one framed inside the other one. Each is a picture of a king. It's a picture of a kind of kingdom that exists in this world. Um, and the author is intentionally pitting them against each other. Uh, these two kingdoms that Luke has pitted against each other in Acts 12 are the only two kingdoms that existed in the world at that time. In fact, they're the only two kingdoms that have ever existed. They're the only two kingdoms that exist today. The kingdom of man and then the kingdom of God. Herod, for the moment, sits as king over the kingdom of the world, or his world, anyway. And Jesus sits as king over the kingdom of God. So this is what I want to do in our time together. I want to point out just a couple characteristics of each of these kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. I want to ask how both continue to be present in our world, and I want to ask what their existence means for our lives today. So let's start with Herod. Uh, who was Herod? Now, um, at this time, as you guys probably know, Israel was a state under the control of the Roman Empire. And so Rome would appoint a local king, quote, king, to rule on their behalf over their local areas and regions. Um, now, as you read through the New Testament, it seems like Herod is around forever, right? I mean, his name comes up from the beginning to the end. And that's because he is. Well, not him exactly, but his name is around forever. The Herodian dynasty held this role for the Roman government for decades. So um, Herod the Great is our Herod's grandfather, okay? And Herod the Great was the one who, when the wise men came through and announced that the king was going to be born, he had, um, you know, all those babies killed trying to kill Jesus the king. That's this guy's grandfather, okay? This guy's, our, our Herod's uncle... Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded, and he's the one who sat over Jesus' trial, part of Jesus' trial. And now our Herod, Herod from Acts 12, is Herod Agrippa I, and so he takes it on himself to try to quelch the local um, church, right? Try to stop this new movement of Christianity that's just starting. Um, so he does this by uh, having James, one of Jesus' three closest disciples, killed. Um, and once he did this, he kind of takes a quick survey, right? Runs the polls. Poll numbers tick up. Oh, that was a good political move. Let's do that again. So he goes for a bigger fish, and instead of James, he snakes Peter, throws him in jail. But it's Passover, so he's going to wait a couple nights before he kills Peter. Um, and uh, 
but God, of course, has other plans. And as Herod waits for the celebrations to wrap up, God intervenes and saves Peter's life. And in response to a situation that's slipping out of his hands, Peter says, okay, fine, I can't kill Peter. I'm going to kill the guys who are supposed to kill Peter. And he has his own guards killed, okay? So you can see his, like, this is just how Herod responds. He responds in violence. He responds in oppression. He responds in power. Family has issues. I mean, this is like grandpa, uncle, this guy, every, the Herodian dynasty is consistently and violently opposed to the kingdom of God. That's deep in there. That's the root of what they're about. And the opposition, that opposition to God's reign, to Jesus' reign over all things, is exactly what lies at the heart of every kingdom of man in this world, whether it was the Herods or whether it's today. Kingdoms of this world are kingdoms in rebellion, okay? Kingdoms in rebellion. What are some characteristics of Herod's kingdom? What are some characteristics of of the kingdoms of this world? How do you know if you're part of the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of God? One thing, there is an anxiety that's deep at the heart of Herod's kingdom, a fear that reveals itself in a misuse of power. I mean, Herod, throughout the story, he is not at peace, is he? He sees threats everywhere. I mean, going back to his grandfather, Herod the Great, there are just a few foreign guys who wander through his territory and say, hey, we saw a sign in the stars that there's a new baby that's going to be born, and they're calling him the king of the Jews. And what does his grandfather do? He freaks out, right? Like the reaction doesn't logically connect to the event. And he has babies killed all across his region because of this little word, a little rumor of a threat. How about here? The, the, the reaction does not logically connect to the events. He's just going around killing innocent men so that his political poll numbers can tick up. He is living in fear all the time. One characteristic of the kingdoms of this world is that we only feel safe when we're in control. But this world is too big to control, isn't it? And so we're constantly anxious. We're constantly afraid. We're constantly reactionary. And in this fear and anxiety, we misuse our power, the power that we've been given by God. So we do things like gossip. We, we use our words to manipulate situations, to seize control, where we really shouldn't have control in the first place. Or... We do the opposite of that, and we withdraw. Instead of trying to manipulate everything, we withdraw. And instead of stepping into situations where we really could help other people in need and kind of lovingly serve and care for our neighbors, we don't enter the fray. We don't enter the mess. Why? Because when you do that, you lose control. And things aren't in your hands anymore. And you can be hurt by other people. You become vulnerable. And so in these situations, we misuse our power by not using our power. But in either way, whether we're trying to manipulate or whether we're trying to withdraw, we're, we're misusing power out of fear and out of anxiety because we can't keep control of everything in our little kingdom. This is a sign that we're living in the kingdom of the world. Here's another one. Characteristics of Herod's kingdom. Herod was a vain man who needed constant approval from other people to feel good about himself. All right? Herod is a people pleaser. He does whatever gets him the attention and makes him feel good from other people. Verse 21, 
we read about this diplomatic trip he takes to a neighboring region. He puts on his kingly robes. He sits on his throne. And he uh, gives an oration, okay? He fancies himself a good speaker. And um, in response to this political speech, what do the people shout back? It's the voice of a god, not of a man, okay? Everybody there knows Herod is not a god and that he's a man, right? But he doesn't stop them and correct them. They know exactly what kind of tickles his fancy, what makes him feel good, what's going to like cozy them up to him. And everybody's playing this game. Everybody knows he's not a god. Everybody knows he's a man. But everybody's playing this game that the people pleaser needs to play for everything to go smoothly, right? He has to have the good opinions of other people. He's enslaved to it. Herod gave other people's opinions the place in his life that only the opinion of God deserves. The words of others were more important to his identity than the words of God. Herod was a king, but Herod was deeply enslaved. He was enslaved to the fear of losing control. He was enslaved to the opinion of other people. Why is this? Why with huge amounts of power, vast wealth, basically like a carte blanche, like do whatever you want from the Roman government, just make sure there's no wars. He was a reigning king. Why was he so deeply enslaved at the same time? Doesn't that sound like true freedom? You're a king. Do whatever you want. He was deeply enslaved. Why? Okay, so actually the best commentator on that question, and in some ways on this whole passage, isn't even a Christian. All right, there's this guy, David Foster Wallace. I don't know how many of you have heard of him or read him. He was an author, uh, and he, was, he taught at a creative writing school. He was a college professor as well. Okay, so 2008, tragically, he took his own life. But in 2005, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And in this speech, uh, the title of the speech, if you want to look it up online, is called This is Water. And this is what he says to the graduating students of Kenyon College. Remember, not a Christian. He says, David Foster Wallace, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he says an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap your real meaning, then you're never going to have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. He might as well be talking about Herod here. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will, nev and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is how he closes. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not even evil. It's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kinds of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. And here's the kicker. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Okay, that's not a Christian, but that's the best commentary of Acts 12 that I have read from Christians or non-Christians, right? 
he obviously was a man with deep sensitivity to the human heart, a man who understood that we were designed to tap into a bigger meaning than just reigning over the size of our own skull-sized kingdom, right? We were meant to be part of a bigger kingdom and to serve a greater king than just ourselves. He says, anything else will eat you alive. Well, that's interesting. Look at verse 24, 23. Consider Herod's end. Because he did not give God the glory, what was he done? Eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. Living as the king of his own skull-sized kingdom, Herod was eaten alive by being enslaved to it, and it destroyed him in the end. The freedom to be lords and kings of our own skull-sized kingdom is not freedom but slavery to whatever we worship. Rebellion against God as king is not the freedom from all kings. It's becoming the subject of harsher, less giving, less forgiving kings like beauty and intellect and power and riches. Here is the real problem of every human life, the real problem of our entire world. This is the definition of sin, all right? We have de-godded God and have established rebellious kingdoms. And we are born into this, and then we contribute to it constantly. They're out there in the world. They're in here in our hearts. There are kingdoms of rebellion everywhere. Kingdom of man. All right, that's the bad news. How about some good news? The visible kingdoms of this world, the Herods, they seem impressive. They're strong, right? But just behind the scenes, there is an invisible kingdom, invisible to everyone except those that God has given eyes of faith to see. And it is a truly impressive, truly eternal, unstoppable kingdom of the reigning Lord Jesus. Just out of everyday sight, King Jesus is physically, bodily, in heaven right now, reigning as our king. And Acts is the story of his reign going into the world, right? It's the story of his methods. It's the story of his moves. It's the story of his kingly decisions as he ordains his kingdom spreading out into the world and into your lives. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. All right, I'm in for a campaign of sabotage, right? Like, let's do that. So what are some characteristics of this kingdom, Jesus' kingdom? Uh, the kingdom of God. Luke shows us what it's about by putting this story, a story of rescue, right at the center of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus does not lead into slavery like every other kingdom, but is a kingdom that rescues us into true freedom and into his world. Okay, because of the small plans of a small man bringing over a small kingdom, Peter finds himself locked up in a cell, chained to guards, waiting execution the next day, and Jesus intervenes. But notice this. Notice how this all goes down. The planning, the implementation, the success of Peter's rescue has nothing to do with Peter at all, right? Um, Every detail of this story points back to a God who graciously intervenes in the lives of his people long before they've even come up with a plan to get themselves out of trouble. Peter is not in prison catching a plan to escape. He doesn't have hidden power tools under his bed. He doesn't have an escape car waiting in the parking lot. Peter is literally asleep when God chooses to rescue him. All right. In fact, throughout the whole thing, uh, it's just 
funny. It's funny how oblivious Peter is to what's going on. So first, he thinks he's dreaming. He doesn't even think it's happening. He thinks this is like, what a cool dream before I get executed the next day. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if this were real? Uh, so he doesn't even think it's real. And then the angel who does show up to rescue him basically gives him step-by-step instructions on how to put on his pants. Okay, like this is how you get dressed in the morning. Put your cloak here. Put your sandals on your feet. Good. Come along this way. And then when he leaves the jail, he gives him instructions like, now walk through this road, now go this direction. And finally, he comes to himself. Notice he even it goes out of his way. When does Peter come to himself? When he's already past the iron gate, he's already safe, he's totally out of prison, he's dressed, and he's like, it's great, how did I get here? And that's when he realizes it was real, right? Every step of his salvation and his rescue was ordained and orchestrated by a gracious God who did everything for him before he could do anything in return. That's how the kingdom of God works, right? That's the kingdom that you've been called into and saved into. God initiates our rescue. Okay, it's still funny after that, though. Okay, so then, okay, and just a little side note, the Bible uses humor quite a bit. This is a great example of it, and humor, when done well, is actually this really gracious thing that sort of uh, you know, like we're laughing at whatever's going on, but then we realize like most of the fingers are pointed back at ourselves. Like that's what humor does. And so here is a moment when it's done graciously and kindly and generously where we're laughing at these folks. And then we realize like, oh, this is us. Like we should be laughing at ourselves. Okay, so this is where it continues to get funny. Um, so he goes to, the, to, to Mary's house where everybody's inside, quote, earnestly praying for his rescue. Okay, he knocks on the door, Rhoda, uh, is so excited, she doesn't even open the gate for him to come in. She just runs back inside, right? And so he, you can imagine Peter like, eh, no biggie. Like, I've uh, probably got, you know, a few more minutes before the Roman guards find me. You guys take your time. I'll wait outside. Uh, just escape from a Roman prison. No rush. So she goes inside, gets everybody. And when she announces that he is there, um, what's their reaction? Well, since it obviously can't be him, Wonder who it is. I got it. It's far more likely that it's his angel, right? So the very thing that they were praying for, they're like, well, it's clearly not what we were asking God to do. It must be his angel. That's it. Yeah, that's it. So it's almost slapstick. And it's incredibly encouraging to me. Okay, I hope it is to you. Because King Jesus not only initiates the rescue of his people, when we are far from perfect, far from ready, and not even, re- like not even ready to be rescued, right? Um, King Jesus initiates the rescue of his people, but he also responds to his people's prayers when they're far from faithful, and they're far from certain, and they're far from confident. There was real faith here in their prayers. I mean, the disciples earnestly prayed for Peter, but there was also a real lack of faith here, right? They were totally shocked and floored that anything they asked their king might actually happen. Uh, The kingdom of God is characterized by the intervention of a loving and gracious God who brings light and salvation to his people, not because we earn it, deserve it, plan it, initiate it, or even ask for it perfectly, but simply because we need it. Simply because we are enslaved, we are in prison, and God loves to rescue his people and bring them health and wholeness. Peter sums up his whole story in verse 17. The Lord brought me out of prison, right? That line is the summary of every Christian's life. 
we are in prison. We have put ourselves inside of our own little skull-sized kingdoms thinking we run things or that we need to constantly be in control. And God rescues us and brings us into a greater kingdom that he has plans to change the world. King Jesus sends his light to shine into our spiritual darkness. It's not Peter's ingenuity or even the faithfulness of the church that ultimately saves Peter. Um, it's God who saves Peter. Here's the defining characteristic of the kingdom of God, verse 24. This is the summary statement. This is the end of that paragraph, the last line in the chapter. If you've been caught in the weeds through this whole thing, you don't quite know what's going on, here's the summary story, and here's the summary line of the entire book of Acts, where we've been and where we'll keep going. The word of God increased and multiplied. Okay? That is what God's kingdom does. It doesn't always look like it. It doesn't always feel like it. But the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of Herod, they will fall. They look strong right now, but they will they will decrease and end. God's kingdom will increase and multiply. John Stott put it this way. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. How does it end? It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. There is a neat ending to this chapter. It's not meant to be a promise that every one of our days or every one of our months will have quite as neat an ending but we know exactly how this story ends, right? It ends this neatly and this powerfully. This is where God is taking his kingdom. It's an unstoppable one. And so because of the certainty of King Jesus' reign, there are great resources for us as we live in this kingdom. Resources of peace and hope in the midst of today's difficulties. No matter where we find ourselves in the course of the story, we have resources to live it out faithfully. So in contrast to Herod's anxiety and fear, his sort of frenetic, irrational responses to try to maintain control where you can't really maintain control, Peter has um, so internalized the promises from his king, what's he doing the night before his execution? He's sleeping like a baby, right? He knows that no matter what happens over the next 24 hours, there is, there is real rest. I mean, he can rest. He knows he's not in control, and he sleeps like a baby the night before he's supposed to be killed. Where does that, where do those sorts of resources for living in the world come from? They come from the kingdom of God, from King Jesus, knowing that he sovereignly reigns over all things, and that no matter what happens, his kingdom's unstoppable. His word is increasing and multiplying. There's real spiritual rest. There's real physical rest. Because Jesus gives us all we need. We have true nourishment there and true life. All right, I'm going to close with uh, a story that's probably familiar to a lot of you guys. It's about a boy who faced more or less the same choice that we all face every single day. His name's Max. Uh, you've probably heard his story, read his story, maybe read it to kids or had it read to you. You can find it in a great little book called Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, as you remember, in rebellion to his parents, he goes to his room, and he establishes his own kingdom, right? Um, they, uh, in this kingdom, he sails in his private boat to a place where the wild things are. They roar their terrible roars and gnash their terrible teeth and roll their terrible eyes. And he became their king by saying, be still. Sovereignly reigned over the uh, kingdom about the size of his own skull. 
he became king of the wild things. He ruled them with total sovereignty. Uh, and for a while, the rompus was exactly what he thought he wanted. Until we read this. Max, the king of all the wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. The story turns for Max when from far away, across the world, he smelled good things to eat, and he gave up being king, and he goes home to the gracious meal that was waiting for him, that in the last lines of the whole book, are that the meal was still hot, right? The gift of grace. It's an invitation to come back to the kingdom where there's real nourishment and real food. The very thing that Max was seeking when he rebelled to establish his own kingdom, all that true joy and true freedom and life the, were the very things that he cut himself off from the moment he left the other kingdom, right? The kingdom of home. Um, without food, without family, without love, life withers spiritually, relationally, emotionally. We die in our own skull-sized kingdoms. We are born into those kingdoms that have de-godded God in a world in rebellion, and we participate in that rebellion all the time. But there is not life there. There is not real food there. We will only wither and die there. But the word of God that Acts 12 tells us is increasing and multiplying even now is a word of grace. There is a gift waiting for you now. Jesus is saying, come to my kingdom where there's real food, where there's real nourishment, where I will prepare you for whatever difficulties you'll face in life because my word increases and multiplies, guaranteed. It's unstoppable. That's where real nourishment and that's where life is. Um, let me pray and then we're going to go to the table where the meal is waiting for us right now. All right? Heavenly Father, thank you for reigning over a kingdom of grace and life and nourishment. Um, thank you for graciously inviting us into that kingdom. Not based on any characteristics of our own, no virtue, wisdom, morality, spirituality, any of that, but just because you love us best of all. You call us into your kingdom and you make great promises to us that will last forever. Jesus, help us live as citizens of your kingdom, as members of your family more and more. Help us believe these things deep in our bones. You're so good to us. Help us relish in your gifts. We ask these things in your name. Amen.